You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to Nathaniel Swain about fluency instruction. Nathaniel will share fluency instructional routines you can easily implement in your classroom. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we're going deep into instructional practices for fluency and how it bridges to coding and comprehension. And we have another Australian friend with us today, and Nathaniel Swain is here, who is a senior lecturer at La Trobe University in Australia. (laughs) Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for having me, Laurie and Melissa. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah. We're so glad that we connected on Twitter and that we've heard you on other podcasts, and you're so fabulous. So we're really excited. Oh, that's very kind. <laughs> it's always fun to talk about this stuff. It's it's my hobby, and it's also my job. <laughs> Can't yes. beat that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're going to jump right into one of my favorite topics, which is fluency. And I'm just going to ask you a big question because I know how important I think fluency is to Mm. learning how to read. So I'll start with asking you why you think fluency is so important. Well, if you think about the um, Scarborough's reading rope and the language comprehension and the word identification strands, fluency is really the thing that ties up all of the word identification together. So, when students read fluently, you know that they can accurately identify words, um, you know, automatically and that they have a sense of sounding like they're speaking when they're actually reading. And that basically allows working memory to be freed up so they don't have to think about decoding anymore. They can focus on um, language comprehension and the understandings of the text, which is the whole point of reading. I always love that thinking like that, like your brain only has enough space to do so many things. That's right. <laughs> and I love that idea of like, okay, take these things off your off the plate so I can focus on these other parts of reading. That's so true. And I think that's where we've gotten um, caught up with with the reading wars is that people are so um, particular about, you know, we don't want to do too much phonics or we don't want to do um, the wrong kinds of phonics. And really, you just want to do phonics really well, really early so that we get students moving towards automatic word recognition and fluent reading as quickly and as easily as possible. Yeah, that's such a good point. <laughs> and I love as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, because, you know, the, the longer they get stuck there, the um, the more difficult it is for them to actually start focusing on the meaning, which is what we want, want them to get to. For sure. So would you be able to share the three components of fluency? And um, we'll hopefully during this conversation today be able to connect back to them mm. as we're as we're talking. So listeners can just kind of get grounded in a definition. And then when we move on, we'll, we'll come back to those components. Of course. So, um, there's a few different ways to think about it. The three ones that come to mind for me in most ways of conceptualizing fluency is the speed at which students can read, um, connect to text, the accuracy. So the number of errors that they make, um, but also aspects of expression or prosody. So, um, or prosody, as you might say it. Um, <laughs> so that's the, 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 what I was getting at before of making it sound like as if you're speaking. So, um, 
nice and fluent and um, with expression and pausing at the right times and providing good intonation and things like that. Um, and that's the, the more artistic sort of part of fluency, if you like, because um, it's the part that's harder to measure if you were going to track someone's fluency, but also the bit you like, oh, that's it's a really fluent reader. So you can hear in the way that they're, they're reading it sounds like um, natural speech. Yeah, I think the one that, that gets uh, tricked up on sometimes is the speed. We don't want to speed race, right? We, I think Jan mm. Hasbrook says, um, read like you're talking. Is there is there mm. anything you would add to that in terms of speed? or? I think it depends on the purpose of reading. I think um, fluency is obviously important so that students can read aloud with, with expression and clarity um, so they don't want to have lots of errors. They don't want to be too slow. Um, but as you said, you, you don't want to be too fast when you're reading aloud. The other purpose of fluency, though, is for students to, to be able to read quickly in their own heads. And as students um, progress with their reading, um, more and more they're actually going to read in their heads. And there is no limit to, you know, how fast you want them to read as long as they don't um, impact the amount of words that they can process or understand. So they're not sort of skimming to the point where they lose meaning. Um, so in some ways we actually we don't want to hold students back from reading quickly, but if we're reading aloud, um, there is a limit to what you want them to do. You don't want, I've seen extreme situations where you've got kids who are try, literally trying to beat the clock and go as fast right. as possible. And, <laughs> Me too. And there's, a, there's a loss there in terms of the expression as a result. But I think if the message to students from teachers is that you, you can read as fast as you want to in your head, as long as you're understanding the text. Um, but when we're reading aloud, there's probably some limits to how fast we can read because it becomes a bit incomprehensible. And it means that you're deliberately skipping over pauses and, and full stops or periods um, when you really should, so that it makes sense for the listener, but also for the reader. I was just thinking that I, I never think about it for myself. I, when I think of fluency, I think much more of teaching students and them reading out loud. Mm. And I, I'm glad you brought that up of like what happens in your own head, because I was thinking about, I do that sometimes when I'm reading and, you know, I mm. want to try and read something quickly. And then I get to the end, like, I read that way too fast. <laughs> like, yep. I, you know, I need to go back and slow down. Um, but that's my own fluency. And, you know, my Sil right. My silent and, reading fluency in my head. <laughs> and it is a different a different purpose for reading. And mm -hmm. I think Marianne Wolfe does a really good job, the famous neuroscientist and um, expert in reading, of, of saying that the way that we read on screens and the way that our um, reading behaviours have been impacted by digital devices is actually some somewhat in the negative because we do find ourselves skimming and yes. speed reading and flicking, you know, scrolling through pieces rather than actually reading them start to, to finish. And the skill of actually sitting there with a novel or with a long article and reading it properly and completely is um, somewhat being lost over time as, as we've actually changed our reading behaviours. So um, we have to think about what kind of purpose do we have in mind when we're developing students' fluency? Is it because we want them to read deeply or is it maybe in this particular lesson or in this group of lessons, we're actually trying to get them to read efficiently. And there's sort of two competing um, goals there. So um, if we want every student to reach their potential with their reading um, fluency for the purpose of comprehension, then there's always going to be a balance between how fast we want them to go, but then also how um, well we want them to read, whether in their head or um, out loud. All right, we're going to ask you a big question now. <laughs> but sure. I'm going to ask you the big question, and then I'm sure we're going to stop you a lot and ask you to give examples and ask you questions about it. But my big question is, what we really want to know here from you is, what are some things that teachers can do with students for them to practice their fluency in the classroom? 
So there's three main ones that I want to take you through. I think the easiest one um, to begin with that you can do all the time and doesn't have to just be in your reading class is um, the very underused strategy of choral reading. So um, having a text that's shared with the students, whether on a document camera or on a PowerPoint slide or, um, you know, on on a worksheet in front of everyone or a copy of an actual book or a text, Students might have a class novel that they all have a copy of, for instance, actually reading together. And it's um, it's sort of been um, painted in a really negative way, saying, oh, it sounds so annoying when everyone's having to read at the same time and it, it sounds really old school. But there's actually something really powerful with the ability to track along with what other people are reading and also to hear fluent reading at the same time. It's also a really good engagement norm that helps everyone to stay focused and and, um, listening to the meaning of the text. So you can just embed an incidental reading fluency just by doing some choral reading. And you might do that in your um, humanity, your... um, what do you call it? Social sciences classes. <laughs> you might do it in your civics um, or your or your actual science, um, or you might do it in your literature and sort of English language arts classroom. And the reason it's helpful is because every student um, is basically supported by one another to follow along with the text, to hear fluent reading whilst they're also producing fluent reading. The other one is um, tracked reading. So when the, the teacher is reading aloud or one student is reading aloud and the students are tracking along, that's also a really nice opportunity to hear what fluent reading sounds like. And there's opportunities for you there to say, well, you know, um, Joanne, you read that really beautifully. Can everyone go back now and read the, the portion that Joanne did and see if we can get the expression that she had. Um, And so, almost practicing it together. And the benefit of doing those things whole class is that there is a lot of accountability. So, you can see whether everyone's tracking and whether everyone's on the same page. The other big one, I think, is um, there's a real focus in Australia at the moment of getting paired reading fluency happening. So, you might set aside 10 or 15 minutes. I'm not sure if you're doing this a lot in the the States as well. Um, But Basically, getting 10 or 15 minutes, you've got students paired with each other, usually one slightly higher, one slightly lower in their reading fluency or their reading accuracy, and they have a text in front of them, usually a shared text that they're both looking at, and they can take turns um, reading the text together. And the idea is to read for fluency, but also for expression and um ideally they're actually understanding what they're reading as well. So it's not just for the purpose of getting the words right. Um, so you might build in that um, some teach like a champion strategies, like account accountable independent reading strategies that you might have in there um, that allow you to check in with students to make sure that they're actually understanding as well, or have some questions that you get students to ask each other about the text. So they might all be on different texts or they might be on different portions or different versions of the same t- text. One of the great things about chat GPT at the moment is that you can take a passage put it into ChatGPT and say, can you generate a 100-word version of this or can you give me a grade three version of this same text? So you could have all the students reading the same content or the same topic um, or the same excerpt from a book, but you might have graded sort of different versions that you have across the class if you did want to have that shared comprehension in this activity as well. Um, and the benefit of the paired reading fluency is that they have turns going back and forth um, of hearing the fluent reading and then having to turn themselves and producing fluent reading. And you might get them to read the same text um, multiple times so that you have that repeating reading effect, which um, does have some research behind it as well. Yeah. I love talking about fluency because it always feels like so much fun to envision kids doing this. And I remember, you know, in my classroom, especially, um, it looked different in the primary classroom versus an intermediate classroom, Mm. but students still jumped right into fluency as an activity that they knew they were going to get big wins from. And it, it excited them to work together in, in this way. Mm. Um, 
So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about, I know you mentioned it, the texts that we might use. Sure. So in in the primary or elementary school, as you call it in Australia, um, Brandon Park Primary School, um, we this is my school before I joined La Trobe University this year, we had a lot of fun with these reading fluency um, sort of portions of the literacy block. So it was usually 10 or 15 minutes set aside. And the text that we chose did vary depending on the the age level and the, the reading proficiency. So in my foundation or prep classroom, or you'd call it um, kindergarten, um, we had students on a range of different decodable texts, so phonically controlled texts, and some students towards, you know, the middle and the end of the year, if they've actually graduated off those decodables, they were then using picture books or um, short passages that I would um, provide them that were just slightly harder and not so phonically controlled. But the, the reason why most of them as beginning readers were on phonically controlled text was so that the reading fluency was developed on words that they had already had success with and that the kinds of um, grapheme, phoneme correspondences they were familiar with and the kinds of word patterns that they could actually read well. So the idea behind doing the fluency session was so that the, the kinds of um, phonics patterns and the um, irregular words that they'd have encountered basically are put together into different texts that they would also read at home with their home readers. And they would have an opportunity to um, not just be reading it for the sake of getting every word right, but actually reading it so that they could get that sense of fluency and expression as they're reading. And for some students, this process can be really slow um, and they can have a lot of difficulty making that transition from being like sort of pre-blending into then sort of blending at a really basic CVC level and then eventually to more complicated syllable structures. Um, And then you might have students who are doing those things, but they're now stuck at um, certain irregular words. And they haven't got that, um, you know, this concept we can talk about today set for variability where they've got that ability to say, um, you know, look at W-A-S and read it. Maybe they might attempt it first time as W-A-S, W-A-S, but then realise that they want to change it to was because um, they've maybe encountered that before or they know that in this sentence and this word must be was because we've got that approach to flexibly um, applying our knowledge of sound letter patterns. Um, So through the process of reading um, passage text like that, they can really um, hone that ability to um, use all of the phonics skills and phonemic awareness skills that they've got, but also starting to experiment with um, how do you get the whole sentence to sort of flow together. And that's really, it's, it's the, the core work of, of getting the decoding to then flow into fluency and fluency to flow into comprehension. So it, it's really, really important. All right. <laughs> um, did you want me to jump? I, I didn't know if you want to jump in there because I've I didn't know if Lori was going to jump in there. <laughs> I can't, no, it's fine. I was actually thinking for three plus, for like grades three plus. I was about to go to three plus. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, sure. Yeah. So, with as students get more proficient, as the decodable texts become less relevant, they might sort of graduate off them because they're just no need for them. It's too simple. You want to basically move them onto authentic, um, you know, uh, regular sort of text. It doesn't have to be like um, a leveled text in terms of the, the number of sentences are shorter deliberately. Um, as soon as they've they've got the phonics patterns and the ability to. Um, to, to read a range of different kinds of words, the the kinds of complexity that you want to introduce is actually about the content and the vocabulary. So thinking more about comprehension. Sure, there might be some words in there that they might have trouble decoding because you're not thinking about um, 
the the length of the syllables and things like that anymore. But the idea is that if they move on to some some um, texts that are about topics that they're interested in and that maybe relate back to units of work that you're doing, that's the real um, money spot in terms of fluency is an opportunity. That fluency session is an opportunity to develop their um, prosody, their expression, their rate, and their speed. Uh, sorry, their accuracy. Um, but also, they might actually be learning extra information or retrieving information from what they've learned about previously. So that might be a storybook that they've read before in in your English language arts. It might be passages that you've created or that you've taken as excerpts from um, texts that are about the topics from science and social sciences and civics. Um, or it might be um, other texts that are interesting to them. So you might actually have interest area texts that you generate for them or that you get from things like um, read works or, or other great resources that have passages that you could use. And that's where fluency can be about you know, getting really fluent and, and good at your expression and maybe working in those pairs still, but also potentially learning from what you're reading as well and sort of knowing that if you're trying so hard to be fluent but you're not understanding the text, then you're not quite fluent enough, if that makes sense. Yeah. Can I ask a quick question before we we kind of go into the ways that we would uh, dive into fluency uh, practice? So when mm. we think about what you just said about the building knowledge um, or, you know, students would read texts that they might have some familiar knowledge and vocabulary on in three plus. Um, say I'm a classroom teacher and I'm looking at a book and the book has the word, let's just say it's like bioluminescence. Mm-hmm. What, yep. and what I, <laughs> yeah. So say the, the other words around it were, you know, not terribly difficult to decode, but that yep. has, yeah, that's a word. What I, as a teacher, use that sentence or could I use that to build fluency and use it as an opportunity to like unpack that vocabulary word? Or is that like too much for my students? I'm just wondering what you would say to teachers who are listening who are like, okay, so how many words are like too many to be unfamiliar? Or this is a Mm. really big word and it feels really tricky for my students. What what advice would you give to teachers looking at a passage thinking, I just, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So I think it is, it's a balancing act. You don't want to give texts that are inaccessible and that sort of break, sort of the break down, um, the process too much for the students and they get stuck on every second word. But, um, if you've got the word like bioluminescence and you have in your English language arts, you've got opportunities to learn about prefixes and suffixes and morphology, then there is actually an opportunity for students to practice how do you attack a new word based on its prefixes, suffixes, and root words. So bio meaning life, um, loom meaning light, and essence, um, can't exactly remember what, but <laughs> probably essence. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that it all comes together. So it's, it's um, you know, light, uh, light that is created by biological creatures. And so, um, it, it's uh, there's an opportunity there, I guess, to challenge your students if you've got that particular word or words like it. But um, if you're finding that it's a barrier to them actually enjoying and using that fluency session to develop fluency and to feel successful at their reading, then you can obviously strip it back. I think there's a, probably a tendency as a hangover from the balanced literacy movements in that we, we're afraid to give students challenging texts and we're afraid to give them things that are in the frustration zone. Um but it's actually important to give them opportunities to encounter unfamiliar words and to tackle difficult texts. They don't always have to do that independently. They might do that in pairs or you might actually do that as a whole class. I know Tim Shanahan talks a lot about whole class um, uh, sort of analysis of complex text and there's that close reading sort of concept which is really helpful where you actually look 
particularly and, and look at challenging text and try and pull it apart. So it depends on what you're trying to get out of that session. But I think if it's for fluency um, and that's the, the, the time that you're trying to develop it um, and it's it's set up in a way that you can actually wander around and there's a bit of autonomy. For instance, at, um, at our, our school and a few others that have done similar things, we've got a bell that sort of rings on the PowerPoint slide every minute and that bell tells the students to swap partners. So when this, the teacher sort of presses go on that PowerPoint slide that's automatic, then um, they know that to swap. And as a teacher, you can then float around the room, actually hear students that you want to hear and you don't have to sort of keep an eye on the time or to to click your fingers or whatever it might be to tell students to swap partners. Um, so that 10 minutes could free you up basically to go in and, and do other things. Um, so I think it's a balancing act because if you want that 10 minutes or that 15 minutes to work really well and you want students to feel successful, you are going to have to do a little bit of pairing back of complexity. Um, luckily, we don't have to do a lot of um, writing or editing ourselves these days. If you can use things like ChatGPT to your advantage, you can take any text and simplify it or make it more complex in the, you know, the click of a button and then, you know, have those ready. Um, so I think it's a bit of a trial and error. But my message would be don't shy away from complexity, If especially if you know you've got students in your class that, you know, are ready for a challenge and it seem like they're tracking along well. You don't want them to stay stagnant on comfortable text for too long because if you're not fluent on unfamiliar text, then you're not you're basically not fluent yet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I have my teacher hat on, and I'm still stuck on the three um, <laughs> suggestions you gave for how to improve learners' mm. um, fluency. And I have a million questions for you, and I want to ask them so that because mm. I know. Let's do it. I know our teachers are going to ask them, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I want to make sure we do. Um, so I'm going to take us right back to those those three that you mentioned. Um, yeah. So the first one, choral reading. Um, I was a middle school teacher, and so when I'm thinking of older students, I'm wondering, like, is choral reading something that is good for students of all ages, or is this something that maybe is just a K two thing? And I think that's a question I've heard before, you know, is that, is it something that older students could be doing, should be doing, will they do it? <laughs> mm. um, and then wondering too, you know, as you get in the older grades, you're reading much longer text. So what's, what's realistic for, you know, how long of a text or part of a text you would actually choral read together as a whole class? Because I, you know, if we're reading an, a novel, <laughs> we're clearly mm, not going to yeah, read the whole novel together, <laughs> but you might not still want to put it in there. So I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a really important question. So I think you're right. It, the choral reading does work well when it's short bursts and it works well when it's, um, you know, particular segments that you're wanting to highlight. I think it, in the regular sort of lessons, choral reading works really well when you're like reading a shared definition or if you're, um, you know, wanting to look at a particular segment of the text that has a really good quote or has a really nice use of language. And like bioluminescence? Like exactly, you know, <laughs> if it's particular terms, like actually do that, um, the EDI engagement norm of pronounce with me and say, you know, everyone say with me bioluminescence and you might do it syllable by syllable if you need to. Um, so that students have that opportunity to, um, orthographically map it. Cause if they haven't got the sounds of the, that word, then they can't map it to the letters and they'll always have difficulty saying that word, but also reading and spelling that word. So I think with the older students, particularly, but also with the younger students, it's going to be smaller chunks. And if you've got older students, like in middle school, for instance, your amount of reading is going to be a lot bigger. So I sort of use choral reading as a thing that mixes up the, the way that we approach, um, some shared reading together or some explanations of, um, the, 
the explicit part of the lesson, say we're doing some writing about a particular text, we might read elements of um, the instructions or the definitions that help to drive the content of the of the lesson. I think it's really helpful to just know that it's it's there in, in your back pocket and you can use it. And it's a really easy way to sort of ensure that everyone's on the same page, but also gets a chance to do some um, fluent reading as, as a group. Um, you can definitely overuse it, so I'd just be aware of that. But yeah. in terms of older kids, um, I with my university students, sometimes I do use coral reading oh, just nice. as, as a way to make sure that everyone's with me and we're all sort of reading together. And it's just a nice way to know that everyone's got a chance to turn their voice on and to, to ensure that they're with you um, because it's so easy you know, in, in high schools and things like that, they might have devices and laptops and stuff around or iPads and things. And so there's a lot of distractions that are there. So it's nice to have something you can to bring everyone back on the same page, but also, as we were talking about before, to give them a chance to hear what it sounds like when you read fluently and um, what um, what those particular vocabulary words sound like or the particular parts of grammar. Um, so, yeah, that's my, my sort of caveats around choral reading. Um, but it's a really useful tool to have in your back pocket that you can just introduce a little bit of fluency in every lesson. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Just so, you know, teachers who have much longer text don't just throw that away and say, well, we obviously can't choral read this text. <laughs> yeah, no, like you might just do a sentence or, you know, you might do an excerpt as a choral reading and the rest you might do some tracked reading if you are doing a shared reading experience together. Um, the, the teacher might do it and the students track or one of the students might read and then you track. Um, and students often, depending on how the culture of your classroom is going and how confident the readers are, um, we've found a lot of success with students being like, I want to read in front of everyone or, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a culture that builds of like students feeling like they do want to show um, some of their skills because they've worked so hard on their reading and it's nice for other students to hear examples of how other students read and knowing that if you've got a culture of error um, built into the way that you do things when students stumble or if they make mistakes it's all part of the learning process and you have a supportive way that helps students through it I think you know Rob uh, round robin reading has been really sort that of was my um, question killed <laughs> off yeah, you so people really hate it because um, and the problem with round robin reading in some ways is that um, because it's a set order and students know when it's their turn often there's an anxiety sort of thing that happens where their working memory is dedicated to which part of the text is going to come up when I'm going to have to read and therefore what part should I pre-rehearse so that I don't make a mistake and like that's all the wrong things that you don't want students to (laughs) think about when they're doing shared reading or you know individual reading like that so with round robin the problem is that it's a set order and the problem is that um there's not a, some discretion for the teacher to use around who they call upon when. I think um, something that's driven around students who do want to do it or when we've done non-volunteers, say we'll pick someone from the um, the cup of sticks and say, okay, um, Josie, it's your time to read. Um, we've, we've actually set up the culture already so that we know that Josie can um, give it a go and it's okay to make mistakes. But also if she's not ready, like we'll just come back to her. So um, having a no opt out is important, I think. And if you don't have a culture where it's like, own, you know, you don't want to have it so that only certain students read and the others listen, because that sets up a power dynamic that you don't really want. But um, you can do it really nicely where say, even if your reluctant readers, say Josie, isn't ready to read that excerpt. You say, that's okay, I'll come back to you. Um, and you put that down and you come back to it the next um, sort of after two more readers or you might read and then she might read. Um, and then you've also got an opportunity if you really want to scaffold it to say you might read a sentence or the whole class might call read a, se- a sentence and Josie gets to read that sentence again. So a repeated reading of just that little bit so that she still feels successful, um, but also you've scaffolded it as well. Do you have a suggestion for when students are reading aloud in that kind of Tracked reading. I've never used that term before. It's new for me. Mm. (laughs) Um, But if they're reading aloud and they they say a word incorrectly, 
Um, yeah, so as the teacher, that? I would be listening all the time and trying to see if you, you – and if you get it to work really well, like I get my my hands out, like I'm doing like a conductor sort of movement and <laughs> there is a sense of like you're – you know, there I, I basically tell them we're all like instruments and we're going to create beautiful um, sound together. And so if we all, um, if we all uh, sort of speak and read with one voice, then it's actually going to sound really good and it's going to – be sound really fluent and everything. So it's a bit of training to sort of get your class to do that. And it depends on how much, um, depending on the age and the sort of how cool they think they are, like whether they'll go along <laughs> with you with it, but I can, use, I can get university students to do it. So I reckon, you know, if you try really hard, we can set up the culture in any classroom, but, um, as you're doing that, you're then listening for, you know, um, deviations or you're listening for changes in words. And I just pause that straight where it is. It's like someone's stuck on bioluminescence or I've got like bio and it doesn't really come out. It's like, okay, let's pause everyone. Pronounce with me bioluminescence. Your turn. Everyone says bioluminescence and you might even chop it into everyone say bio, bio, lumen, lumen, essence, essence, put it together, etc. And so you just be looking out for things like that. And once you've got it all set up and you've got those strategies ready to go, um, it's easy for me because I've got this sort of dr- drama, musical theatre background. So I'm used to like getting a group of kids, whether it's for a dance or a singing class, like to do stuff like this, which is sort of in the realm of dramatics. But as a teacher, you might not be as familiar. So it's a bit of trial and error to sort of see your flow. Um, but once you get it working well, you can actually get your whole class sort of reading in symphony, if you like, and also listening to each other and hearing fluent reading all throughout the day. It doesn't have to be something you just have in that 10 minutes a day. That's great. Uh, you can tell when you did your choral or um, conductor. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> like that. Can I throw out a couple other things that as I was writing them down, I was thinking maybe they're choral reading, maybe they're tractor reading, maybe they're yeah. combination. Yep. But I know that there are strategies that I've heard people use. So, uh, mm. for example, popcorn reading. Do you know what that is? Yep. Okay. That's when you sort of take over one at a time from each other. Yes. Right. And the the way that I've like seen it done more recently is that if like say I was reading and then I wanted to popcorn to Melissa, I would say popcorn Melissa and Melissa could say pass if she didn't want to read. Uh, okay. I don't yep. know. It is. Should we let students pass? Should we? I, I think I appreciate what you said about the culture. So I think my first question is, is popcorn reading a strategy, a good strategy to help with fluency um, in terms of like track to reading um, or is it Sounds a, like- a stress inducing strategy? I don't know. Um, I think it depends on how you set it up and it depends on the, the expectations of the students around it. So if students are finding it stressful, then you haven't set it up properly or it's not quite working for your group that you've got. And every group is going to be a little bit idiosyncratic into what they sort of want to do. Some students really would love that strategy because it's like, oh, it's fun. I could start reading at any moment and there's an opportunity for me to um, make sure I'm listening and tracking so that I know when to pick up. And if you've got a class of semi-fluent readers, then this is actually a really good level of challenge for them because the teacher's reading some, you may be choral reading some, and then you're popcorning, as you said, or just swapping the reader basically to someone else. Um, and I think if you need to have it so that there is a pass option, I would always just come back to them because the reason you come back is to say, well, if you do say pass or you need to um, – opt out for that moment. It's not an opt out all the time. It's an opt out for that moment. And then I'm going to come back to you because the idea is um, you want to keep that Anita Archer sort of um, phrase in your head being that uh, 
learning and teaching isn't a spectator sport. Um, if students know that they don't have to answer questions or that they can opt out of participation, then they will opt out. And some students will do that for years and years on end. I think that removes that opportunity to hear what their reading is like or to hear what they think about issues or to um, to gauge how they're going in terms of their understanding. Um, so it's a, it's a problem if you let it sort of go on that way. If it's really big and if you've got students with particular um, anxieties around speaking in front of the group, there's other ways that you can check in with them or there's other ways that you can help them to participate that um, maybe aren't as stressful. But, you know, um, Doug Lamov says this, the, you know, Hollingsworth and Yabara say that when you've set these things up really well and you have these engagement norms sort of part of the, the normal every day, it's not actually a, a stressful situation. If you've done the scaffolding that you need or if you've given them a chance to come back to them and to choose which answer they like the best or to repeat a certain phrase that they've already heard before, it's not going to be um, out of this realm to expect everyone to participate. And I think that's a really good thing if you can get that to work well because the alternative where only some students participate, just like the traditional classroom where Student, every question students put their hands up and the teacher literally chooses only the people with their hands up it means that you've got you know two tiers or three tiers of your of your students and people don't always feel connected because they they don't have to um participate yeah i love that idea about setting it up i think there's it, i actually you know i feel like in fluency i felt like it was something more that i did rather than it's maybe set up and I, I'm reflecting on my time and, and thinking, oh, okay, I could have I could have set up some things a little differently. So I, I love that idea of setting things up to be you know more successful in in maybe the culture or in the expectations. So that's that's great. Can I throw out one more for you, Nathaniel? Of course. Okay, so I'm thinking about um, I call it fill in the blank reading. I'm not sure what it's actually called. But say there's a sentence and I, I'm reading it and and I'm the teacher and I'm reading and I pause and my students know when I pause, they say that word and then they choral read that word. Now, like I'm imagining it being done really strategically, right? If I'm a first grade teacher and I've just taught, um, you know, long sound spellings for uh, long E, then I would have pre- viewed that book and or that text and really pulled out those words that would be meaningful for my students to practice uh, fluently. Um, or if I am a um, thinking a fourth grade teacher and we are, I don't know, building knowledge on on the heart and I would make sure that I'm pulling out some uh, academic vocabulary that is related to that content for my students to maybe work through or or or, you know, sound out, um, and, and practice that vocabulary. So I'm curious what you think about that strategy. Mm, I think, um, whether you call it fill in the gap reading or it's, it sounds a little bit like sort of like a close reading, you know, that C L O Z E yes, approach, yeah. but instead of the word being something that's missing, it's something that you're leaving out. So they actually know what the word is because it's in the text. I mm -hmm. think that's a, it's something that I've used as well in my, um, kindergarten classroom. So, um, particularly because I had a lot of students who weren't yet reading fluently, um, that did just reading CVC or CCVC words early in the year. Um, but when I was reading a text with them, so it's a, a knowledge building sort of um, text or a, or a literature text that we're sort of reading together, I would do that. I would pause on words that I know that they could read or the, uh, words that I wanted them to um, read together independently. And they, like whether, I can't remember exactly if I prompted them or if maybe I um, did the leave that pause and there was an opportunity for them to jump in. Um, or I might have said, read this with me and I got them to sort of sound it out together. 
So I think with older students, you could just do it in that subtle way of like pausing and then they know to jump in. I think that's really nice. I do a lot of those nonverbal things of like, um, you know, if I'm wanting them to repeat something, I don't have to say anything necessarily. I just say the word bioluminescence. And then I'm just, you know, for the listeners, I'm just <laughs> gesturing forward to the audience to say, well, now it's your turn to say bioluminescence. And I think those subtle nonverbal cues can be really helpful as well if you, as, if your students can pick up on those because then it doesn't interrupt the flow of what you're trying to do and interrupt the flow of the meaning that you're trying to build as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of strategy is really handy. And whether you could do it at a single word level, but you might actually do it at a phrase level as well if you're saying let's actually make sure that they can put these words together in a nice phrase um, or even a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. I was just curious. Those are ones that I've read about and I was, it just is like samples. And I thought, oh, I should ask Nathaniel. I wrote them down for you. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And I think that's really handy. I have used that as well. I just probably haven't called it anything, but I like fill in the gap reading as a, as a working title. <laughs> I like you that. created something tonight. <laughs> Conductor. I have um, one, one more question about the paired reading. Um, sure. I love that strategy and I was, I've, I'm curious about how you kind of set it up for students yep. so it's successful. Like, do you have any suggestions for teachers of like the kind of the same things you're talking about with the norms and the, the yep. things like, you know, how do they tell each other when <laughs> they may have said a word incorrectly or how to improve yeah. their, their way that they're saying things? Like, are, are there ways to to make it really work well by setting yep. those norms up? So I was thinking that as we're talking about setup in the other um, aspect of the choral reading and and tract reading, I think it's exactly the same for the paired reading sort of fluency session. Um, there is a lot of setup and there's a lot of opportunity to get it working well. I think I I found it the most difficult to get that to work for my kindergarten class with you know year three, four, five, six, where I was able to um, you know basically say the instructions one or two times, maybe provide a model, and then they ran with it. It was kind of easy, but with kindergartners especially, you have to be really explicit and really intentional about how you show them how it works and also just be ready to go in and jump in and we'd have situations where like you know everyone you know most students are doing it but then two are like stuck or they're like looking at each other (laughs) they're like who's meant to be reading and then you'd have you know five-year-olds having arguments about whose turn it is or who's meant to go first of course of course so you know all, all the fun things that you've got but I think usually I'd have like a really clear model like when we first do it and you know over the first few weeks that we trial it we sort of do it gradually and we might build up to doing it Eventually, we probably started it twice a week and then we started it three times a week and eventually by the end of the year, we were doing it five days a week um, so that there was always 10 minutes a day that they were doing that fluency practice. And you do have to make sure that students are able to read at a sentence level. If they're not yet reading words and and sentences together, if they're stuck at the um, CVC or sort of simple words, you don't want to push them onto reading whole texts. I was about to ask um, that with kindergartners. (laughs) So you might have two different things happening where if you've got students who are reading decodable text and are able to read at a sentence and a text level, you would set them up into these pairs. And while they're doing that for maybe six months of the year in kindergarten, you'd bring the other group down as a focus group and actually just do more single word work or more um, opportunities to, um, you know, revise aspects of the, the code that you're trying to teach them. So, the, the phoneme graphing correspondences or um, the blending um, of, you know, you might have magnetic letters that you're sort of getting them to spell or to, to um, read with. Um, so, that it's actually a nice way to differentiate so that you've got something set up so that your students are doing those 10 minutes of really um, helpful um, fluency practice because that's where they're at. And for your other 
sort of half of the class, they might actually be doing um, this focus group with you for another 10 minutes, which is a really handy way to sort of separate yourself. And you're not disadvantaging anyone in that in that regard. I think over the course of the year, once everyone's sort of in that sort of um, mode of doing it, you just have some models. So I used to actually get two students sitting on a desk and have everyone else sitting on the floor and sort of looking at them. And we'd actually do a model run through of like the first three or four dings. So we would do um, the, the slides that we've got set up. We have like, you press go and it sort of makes a there actually wasn't a ding sound on PowerPoint, so it was like a cha-ching. Like, um, <laughs> the sound, like when the cash register. Cash register. So, yeah. My friend um, Shane Pearson and I like to say like we're cashing in on all that great um, reading that <laughs> like we're doing. <laughs> so there's a cha-ching every minute. And so the first cha-ching goes off. They know it's the whoever was going first. They read for one minute and they're reading the text. The other person is tracking and watching just like we've practiced as a whole group. One person's reading, the other, per- other group is the other person is tracking and then when they get a word wrong they're meant to jump in and sort of help them with that word or sometimes they overdo that and they sort of give them the word way too early because they're so helpful um and so it's a little bit of partner training in that you know let her try let her have a go if she really gets stuck like then jump in and provide the word or you know it's actually a really nice peer learning strategy that you can develop there if you get it working well um but as the other group is watching them and how they're doing it um they then hear that when it goes cha-ching the next person swaps and they pick up where they left off. Sometimes when they get confused, they do this thing where like I've got my book and you've got your book and we've both got different books going. And then when the bell goes, I start writing, reading my book. When the bell goes, you read your book and I just don't care because I've got my own book. And that's not what you want. <laughs> but students will start doing that because, you know, th- they start realizing that, oh, we're on. Yeah, and you know, we're on slightly different levels. And I don't want to read her one because they're on a different level to me. And it's like, well, we're in this pair. You've got to make it work. So we're going to read her levels because that's where she's at. And, you know, you do swap the pairs deliberately so they get a chance to go with someone higher or lower than them. So it's not always the same dynamic. Um, but once you've got it working well and you show them it's always the same text, it's always picking up where they left off, it means that at the end of the 10 minutes, they've actually read a text together and they've practiced fluency both and they've also heard fluent reading um, back and forth as well. And it's at that individual sort of paired level. Sometimes you've got threes because you've got an odd number and threes works as well. You just sort of go one sort of at a time. Um, you just got to have them on a, a desk that sort of works or get them on the floor so they can all see because that's always an argument that you get with five-year-olds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it sounds like, sounds like you did a kindergarten fishbowl. Is what I think you're a talking about. A little bit, yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. We, for that, for those first few weeks of getting in, in um, embedded, that building that norm and building that routine was definitely you needed. They needed to see it and they needed to go off and practice it themselves. So obviously, when you first set this up, you have to set aside longer than ten minutes in your literacy block to make this work. Um, but once it is working well, we would have eight minutes on the clock with one minute either side for setup and pack up, and you could get it done in ten minutes, which means that you've got still a lot of time in your block to do all the other things you need to do. I'm curious about with like it can be these strategies that you mentioned or something different, but for any yeah. of them, if you have students who are maybe better at some aspects of fluency than others, so maybe they you know they can read pretty accurate, but they're you know going pretty slowly, or maybe yeah. they read pretty quickly, but you know they're they're just reading <laughs> without stopping at any punctuation. There's no prosody. Yeah. Is that something that you kind of work into any of those strategies or do you have extra strategies to share with that work on some aspects? 
So I think when you get into that aspect of, you know, the, the accuracy and the speed is either, you know, accuracy is going well because you're doing all your phonics lessons and they've got a, a handle on single words and they've made that transition to sentences and, and um, short texts. Um, I think that's the thing to do first. And that these strategies that I've talked about so far, they're the ones to sort of to think about first. When you've got students who are starting to either read too fast or um without prosody or they're reading too slow, they're, but they're getting every single word right. That's where something like repeated reading um, works really well. So you might have the same text that the students are reading and they'll actually read it multiple times. Um, one way to do this to make it sort of interesting is that you might, and Tim, Tim Rosinski talks about this, you um, could create like a, like a reader's theatre sort of situation where, you know, you've got actually um, a small play or a little script. And best thing about ChatGPT, I'm sorry I'm saying that a lot today, you can actually get it to create a play version of any text. So I've got it to um, oh, generate like a script. Oh yeah, anything. <laughs> like I've got it to do sitcoms. I've got it to do like <laughs> a, a movie treatment of like you know a random storyline. It can do it. It can really like create anything. So if you put like I don't know a, a nursery rhyme or a fairy tale in, say the Gingerbread Man I've done recently, and you say I want a, a different version of the Gingerbread Man where it's like a um, a soup bowl full of dumplings and the dumplings are going to escape and run away from being eaten it'll do that so it and, and create in a really interesting way it'll create it but then what you can so that's a variation on story you can also get it to do a variation on format so you can say take this text which is the the gingerbread man and it actually knows all those texts already so you don't even need to provide the text you'll say like create a version of the gingerbread man which is a um a script for three students to read three dialogue parts. And it will do that for you. So it'll say, you know, three students and they all have dialogue. And you can even say put in stage directions or take stage oh directions gosh. out. And <laughs> crazy. then if you wanted to, you could have a group of three and you've got your script. It's maybe about a story that they've read before or a slightly different version of, of a topic. Um, you could do fiction or nonfiction with this. And you could turn it into a play um, where students have dialogue that they then read. And the benefit of the of the play is that there's a, there's a real reason to actually repeatedly read and to get to fluent reading because at the end they then perform it and ideally they perform it without the script so they actually memorize it um th that's a really helpful way to do it and obviously that would take more time but it's also a really nice oral language activity as well for them to um remember you know parts of texts in their memory forever you know we're all good at learning um, nursery rhymes and aspects of different stories or quotes from famous books and things like that so those are really important bits of language that they can take with them in their life. So you can do this obviously with established plays and with um, established short stories that as well that are more important for literature reasons. But if you just wanted to generate something quickly or that is at a particular particular level, ChatGPT can do that for you really well. Um, so it's actually a really handy tool in that way. Um, the other thing I'd say is that poetry is, is the other thing that's really useful for repeated reading. So you might have um, famous poems or you might have poetry that you find online for written for children or you might um, even take things like nursery rhymes and sort of give students, depending on the age level, give students an opportunity to master the, that poem or that piece of writing so that they can re recite it really beautifully and really um, clearly and maybe without actually looking at it as well. So they might memorize it too. And the benefit of doing that is that they actually, you can actually jump in and say, if everyone's memorizing a similar text, you can jump in and provide feedback on intonation and feedback on prosody. You can say, well, here you really need to pause so the audience can you know, listen and hear what the next bit is before you jump in because at the moment you're rushing through every single period or every single comma. Um, and I think repeated reading is a, probably an underutilized strategy, um, but if you make it interesting for the purpose of, you know, performance, um, you know, it's where that drama sort of background of mine comes in handy. Um, and every every teacher should see themselves as being dramatic in some way because we are creating things together in a, with a live um, group of students and like an audience. So, um, 
it's it's really it's an opportunity i think to use aspects of drama in a really considered way that also enables students to get become better readers and better writers wow i'm going to rabbit hole with some chat what is it i don't even know how to say <laughs> we need it. To, chat we need to yeah, just GPT. take it hey Lori, and GPT. dive into it together I, yeah <laughs> <laughs> like gpi gpt like i don't know what this thing is but i'm very excited about it <laughs> also a little scared of it <laughs> equally equally excited and terrified we'll get there we'll get there chat gpt questions you want to go down that rabbit hole or we can <laughs> i've played around with it a lot it's really really powerful for teachers yeah oh my gosh i bet um yeah, that's what I'm going to spend my evening doing. As you're you're starting your day, Nathaniel, I'll spend my evening rabbit holing right in, <laughs> into that. It's awesome. The other benefit <laughs> is, with it is um teaching of writing. So you can you can take texts or get it to generate text that has particular um, writing structures in it. So if you want to say, give me a text with examples of a positives, or you know, think mm-hmm. back to the writing revolution, you can say, give me um, texts that have examples of subordinate conjunctions, or you know, generate example sentences that follow the structure of because but so. Like you know, there's a lot of writing that you have to do when you create. Um, written materials for the purposes of te- teaching and some teachers are really good at that and some teachers find it really hard and actually make grammatical errors without realizing and then if you've written that text um, for that lesson then that lesson is going to reinforce a grammatical error potentially um, or yeah. miss a potential nuance there that you could get across so utilizing either you know shared planning where you actually share those responsibilities together and you have better writers in the team that help to ensure the quality control or using other tools like chat gpt or grammarly and things like that in in, in a more simple sort of way um, can actually help you to ensure that what you put in front of students is high quality and also um, fit for purpose for whatever you're trying to teach. That's what I was going to say, because you can connect it to the topic of whatever, whatever you it is it you're reading anything. about. And that's great yeah. because yeah, I remember like randomly researching readers theater scripts, like about anything just so we could practice one. Whereas this would yeah. give you something that actually might relate to what you're, what you're teaching. So it's and much more meaningful. Is, it, Exactly. You could take a reader's theater script that's already there and give it to ChatGPT and say, generate another script like this, so the same format and the same conventions about this topic or using this story as a basis or ensuring that you have these particular concepts. So you've got to put bioluminescence or photosynthesis in there somewhere because it's a focus in your science class. Um, it can do it and it can do it in really interesting ways. I've got it to do some pretty fascinating things in terms of, um, you know, with high school, it's done a, like a dramatic version of two competing um, epistemologies of throughout history. So it's looked at the fight between the Enlightenment and the Romanticism sort of periods. And um, I've got it to generate a play with key figures from history sort of um, fighting with each other the way that those ideas were fought back in the day. And it was actually really clever and really insightful. I was like, I actually learned from this. This is awesome. (laughs) So, you know, if you wanted to give students information in a different way, you know, dramatic sort of creations or, you know, scripts or... um, poetry or song it can generate songs and things for you like it, it's just really useful i think if you're like well how do i get this across to students well there's, there's things that you could do creatively yourself or there's things that you can do creatively with um a tool like chat gpt which can just generate text really quickly and allow you to experiment yeah i love that idea of keeping the text that we're using or the topic that we're teaching about at the center and then using that as a springboard for our fluency instruction but using the tools that we have, like Melissa said, you know, we don't need to spend an hour 
Google searching for something if there's a tool that can help us do it more efficiently and actually get what we need a little bit easier. So I love that. I think that's really practical and especially just, you know, I can't say it enough, keeping that, that topic or keeping the text that we're studying at the center, at the core of the fluency, like, you know, I think it it gets tricky when we try to pull in our fluency work for with something that feels random or maybe that is random. And I think in the past that might have happened because that's you what we could find, find right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if we have that access, that's it's really cool to be able to provide those different opportunities for students. And just to do a little plug here, my colleague Lynn Stone from Lifelong Literacy and I, and in, in our um, in my charity that I've got for teachers called Think Forward Educators, we've got a PD session that's coming up in the next few months. Um, so look out for the adver- advertising for it. And it's basically how to use ChatGPT for classroom um, planning and instruction. So um, interesting things that we hope to sort of show teachers and seeing how you could get ChatGPT to, to work the way you want to because you have to train it in some ways and to give prompts that really get it to the result that you want. It's not going to give you magic straight away. You have to be patient, but there's, there's hacks that we can share with you that, that would be helpful. So keep a lookout for that. That'd be great. Will you be sure to share that information with us so we can share it with our listeners? Yeah, definitely. We'll put that in the show notes potentially. Definitely. Okay. You know, it's funny too. We did talk with Lynn and, um, she also shared a lot about chat GPT. So I'm feeling like now I know why. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's very cool. Um, Nathaniel, I'm wondering if you might be able to share a little bit of what the research says about fluency and what the research says we can do to improve fluency. Um, I know we've touched on some of it, but just to kind of hit home that these are research-based practices, you're not just whimsically uh, sharing what you feel like sharing (laughs) tonight, (laughs) this morning. (laughs) So definitely. Um, So as we know from the National Reading Panel report, um, fluency was one of the big five that were included. And the reason it was there and the reason it continues to be an important aspect is that um, there's a few lines of research that have shown how important fluency is. One of the lines is they've looked at struggling readers and they've looked at readers who are having difficulty and fluency remains a, a challenge for them. And so they've been able to map that, you know, success with reading is tied back to um, a proficiency with fluency. And they've seen the flip side where they've, they've tracked students over time longitudinally and they can predict their reading um, outcomes um, with the fluency being one of those factors that they use. Others will be um, the other aspects of the big big five, so the comprehension, phonics, phonemic awareness, and vocabulary. Um, and so the fluency is a really important sort of cornerstone. But um, the the other research that's really interesting is the intervention studies to show how to improve fluency. And some of the things that have come out of that are the repeated readings, um, but also the um, modeled reading as well. So the teacher modeling fluent reading and getting the student to imitate it um, and to, to sort of try and um, get that fluency happening in their own reading. Um, but then also the work on improving accuracy and improving familiarity with, with um, connected text. So that work in the phonics space, but also the, you know, the, the fluency practice um, is, is really powerful as well. So giving them a chance to get comfortable with connected text and with um, both phonically controlled and then um, uncontrolled text as well, which is what we want to move them to. I have another teacher question for you, if you're okay with it. <laughs> yeah, of course. I love teacher. My teacher hat never comes off. So. I know, I know. <laughs> so uh, you, you, this is the question we get for literally anything and everything we recommend is about time. Sure. <laughs> How do you fit this all in? Where does it fit in? I have too many other things <laughs> to handle. So I'm sure you get that question. So we're just curious if you have any suggestions. Where, where does this fit? 
So I think um, the, the the good thing about fluency is that if if all things are going well in your literacy block and you're doing your um, your phonics sort of part and you're doing your phonemic awareness, you've got vocabulary and comprehension happening, you've got writing, handwriting, all that sort of stuff happening. Fluency doesn't have to be a massive part of your block. I think if you set aside 10 minutes a day and maybe a little bit more in the setup phase when you build one of these routines or these ways of doing fluency, um, you can get it to work for 10 minutes a day. And I think we've found that, you know, in grades three or four onwards, um, if you've got fluent readers, um, you don't necessarily have to do 10 minutes every single day. Um, you might actually get enough fluency through doing some incident, incidental choral reading or by doing accountable independent reading. So then if you've got students who you know are not quite fluent and they're in grade four or grade five, you can actually spend some of that accountable independent reading time to go and work with them. So um, you might then hear them speak, uh, hear them read a little bit more often than you've got the other students. So we found with, you know, years five and six, and um, I wouldn't expect secondary, secondary or high school teachers to do this very much if they've got their kids at a certain level of fluency, um, that you, you might do it occasionally, but it doesn't have to be a big thing. I think fluency is one of those things like, like phonics and um, phonemic awareness that once you've gotten students to a certain threshold, it's not something you have to continually work on because the ultimate thing that gets them better at fluency is lots and lots of reading and lots of success at reading. And that's both reading aloud, but also reading um, uh, in their own heads. So if you've got students who are reading novels, there's not, um, unless they're doing a particular focus on presentations or, um, you know, say putting together a play or doing a reader's theatre or something like that, there isn't a huge need to constantly drill fluency. Um, you can check in on them and make sure that they're up to up to where they need to be. So using your ORF methods or oral reading fluency method, um, methods that help to see how many words per minute they get correct at a single word and a passage level, that can be really helpful to make sure that they're on track. Um, but in some ways, because of the self-teaching hypothesis, this is David Sher's theory of, of reading and how it, it sort of works at this higher end, um, students actually start to um, teach themselves any exceptions that they find in words that they encounter. So um, they have enough uh, phonics and enough morphology and enough vocabulary um, and uh, awareness and understanding to basically be reading text independently um, and then to be um, sort of making good um, predictions on what the the word would be if there's an unfamiliar word. And the reason we know that this works um, is the self-teaching hypothesis is because there's lots of examples of really precocious readers who in conversation will drop an epitome or a hyperbole, um, you know, <laughs> which is meant to be epitome or hyperbole. And the reason they do that is because they've only heard that word um, in their own head as they've yeah. read it. And so um, that shows that once they are fluent and once they've got good um, abilities to um, attack words and to use other sort of morphological as well as phonological and orthographic strategies to figure out the word, then they're going to get to the meaning of the word, even if the pronunciation isn't quite right, because there's a there's an interesting thing going on there with Greek words and how they're pronounced. It's like the first time I heard Hermione after I read Harry yes. Potter. I know. I was thinking Hermione the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, for like so seven, seven years i know well because we all probably read it before they had audiobooks and we could even yeah. take a listen yeah. like that wasn't a thing yeah <laughs> and who movie. would have thought hermione like that doesn't it doesn't look like hermione it looks like hermione and that's not no. a normal name but like there's there's lots of lots of strange names and unfamiliar terms in that book so right. um yes. it sort of made sense yeah <laughs> Yes, I totally agree. That's what I was thinking too, Melissa. That same exact example. <laughs> <It's funny. laughs> Harry Potter fans. Are all, yeah, yeah. Right. 
Nathaniel, would you just, would you share like, what is the value add? Like, why should we be doing this? Other, How is it helpful? And, and any teacher listening who's thinking, I'm so stressed about time. There's so much I need to do. And, you know, what is the true, if you needed to like narrow it down, like what is the true mm. value add for your students? Like kind of bring it together. So um, with the early reading space, the value add is really like this is make or break for some of your students in terms of um, being confident, independent readers. Because to be a confident, independent reader, it's not just about um, how well you can figure out each word. It's how well you can do it efficiently, effectively and smoothly so that it doesn't actually interfere with your working memory on the comprehension piece, which is what we talked about at the start. So it's, it's really important in that space. Um, I also think to be honest, when you've set it up really well as a busy classroom teacher, um, when you're trying to manage all the things that you've got during the day, that 10 minutes of the bell sort of going off one minute at a time, it's actually a chance to breathe. Like if you've got <laughs> explicit instruction and if you've got lots of uh, sort of teacher directed or teacher facilitated teaching throughout your block because you're using good instructional practices, um, it's actually it's very tiring to, to stay on top of that all the time. So having 10 minutes maybe in the middle of the block that gives everyone a breather to just read um, and to do it in a, in a meaningful way. So they are practicing fluency and it is, um, you know, peer, peer assisted. Um, you can actually, if you haven't got time to go and read and, and listen to students reading in that, in that um, sort of 10 minutes, you can actually just get a drink of water, have a listen to the lovely sound of all your students sort of reading together and, um, and know that, you know, it's all going to be okay if you don't go and listen to a particular student read in that moment. So I think it's a 10 minute thing that if you set up really well, it's an easy part of your day. And it's also um, a, a moment that could be really important um, on that daily sort of practice because some students will have lots of time to read at home, but depending on your students and the, the home environment that they're in, they might not be able to do that daily reading that, that we want them to do when they take their readers home or when they do reading in other ways. So this is, might be their moment of 10 minutes a day where they actually put all of the skills that you've been developing together, the phon phonics, the phonemic awareness, the um, irregular words that you're trying to teach them, the vocabulary, comprehension, trying to put it all together to sort of read successfully with a peer. Um, and that might be really important for some of those students who aren't going to get that 10 minutes of reading or 15 minutes of reading at another point. Yeah, we appreciate that. That's a great <laughs> point too. <laughs> Thank you for so concisely answering that too, like a final plug oh, that's for good. fluency. <laughs> It's, it's really, it's, it's awesome. Like, and I think you can think too much about it and think, well, how do I make the fluency exercises more interesting? And how do I get really crazy about it? And like, you know, depending on your age level and the, the level of challenge you've got, you might go more fancy and say, let's do it through poetry or let's, let's do some, 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 um, scripts that we've got developed and do a performance. And that can be really helpful. But, um, if you have to strip it back because you're limited for time or you're limited for, um, what you can fit into your day, um, just doing those 10 minutes of peer read, peer reading, or um, combined with some opportunities for choral and um, tract reading as well in your everyday sort of classroom teaching, that'll be a lot of fluency that you can build in. Um, so it doesn't have to be a huge extra thing that you add in on top. Very reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing these, I think, really concrete practices with teachers. We really appreciate these takeaways that they can do in their classroom. Uh, it's, um, you know, it, it's the bread and butter of what we need to do to support each other, I think, because in students, um, sorry, in teachers that are making their transition to a, a classroom that does align with what we know about how we learn and how we learn to read specifically, there's a lot, there's a lot to think about. And there's say, you know, you have to de-implement at the same time that you implement because you can't just keep adding things on top of each other. So, if, when you look at your literacy block and when you think about what definitely needs to be there, um, you don't have to put in half an hour of fluency, like 10 minutes, maybe 15 if you really 
really need it um, is, is sufficient so that you've got enough space for everything else that you're trying to do. Um, and that's that's the takeaways that hopefully te- to make teachers feel better about, you know, not beating themselves up. They haven't made, you know, an hour for, for fluency right. sessions or, you know, a weekly thing that they're constantly learning a new script and a new performance and, you know, how do, how do I fit in all these performances? It doesn't have to be as elaborate of that elaborate as that all the time. Um, it can actually be quite simple and quite a relaxing part of your day as well, if, if need be. Yeah, that's helpful. And I, I know it's like so motivating too for kids to see that oral reading fluency number go up. You know, I, I we've talked we talked about it with Jan Hasbrook, but I just another mm. plug too for that motivation factor of kids knowing that their goal, seeing the number where they're at, seeing themselves increase, and also the benefit of really teaching the idea of consistency of practice over time. And it's just a little mm. bit goes a really long way. And that, that to me is always like the big appeal with fluency. I just, I, I adore flu- like the fluency instructional practices because I think they're so much fun. And I just think there's, they're so like tangible for kids to see yeah. the results of, and it's very motivating, especially, you know, my favorite grade to teach was fifth. So fifth graders are like the most competitive kids you know, age yeah. you could get. So that it was always a big thing. And, you know, Melissa, I know middle school too, like they, they want to see themselves increase from their previous number. And if you can get that idea of you against you, you know, and, and help them feel motivated, it's pretty awesome. Exactly. And it's, um, yeah, it's students being able to see their progress. I think as you articulated is so vital. Um, it's, it's an opportunity for them to, um, yeah, just know that the, that daily practice is really paying off and that there is a point to all of this sort of work on it. You know, there's a point to doing phonics. There's a point to doing phonemic awareness. There's a point to learning about morphology because um, it's not just for the sake of it. It's so that you, in those moments of reading interesting texts and coming across unfamiliar words and having a long sentence that you have to try and pull together, um, you have got sort of tools in your tool belt that you can use. And through daily practice, it becomes more and more automatic. And you, as we said before, you don't, you can stop thinking about it and you can focus on what is this author actually trying to say to me? Well, I, I am really glad that you came on today and were able to share all of this with us. We really appreciate all the work you're doing and being able to take time for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's it's always a pleasure to speak to passionate teachers and passionate educators. And I think you both in the work that you're doing really fit that, um, the bill. So, thank you for um, thinking of me as well. Thank you. Same to you. And we will link your Think Forward educators uh, in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.